Welcome to Spotlight 19, the podcast tracking Representative John Fazzo and his voting record. Justin Tracy here. There's a little over two weeks until Election Day on November 6th, and the House of Representatives will no longer be in session to allow its members to campaign. In these last 15 days, I hope you are knocking on doors, phone banking, writing postcards, and reminding friends and family how important it is to vote. We have amazing candidates from Antonio Delgado to our progressive Senate candidates, Jen Metzger, Aaron Glad, Pat Strong, Karen Smythe, and Joyce St. George, as well as progressive assembly candidates, Chad McAvoy and Aidan O'Connor. If you want to get involved, head over to ny19votes.com. That's ny19votes.com. And now, Saja's interview from this summer with Tistria Hodling, candidate for assembly in the 107th district. So today I'm sitting down with Tistria Hotling in Kinderhook, New York. Thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Thank you so much for having me. Tistria is running for assembly in the 107th district. Tell us a little bit about you and why you decided to run. So I'm currently the town clerk in the town of New Lebanon, where I was born and raised, and I'm now raising my three young children there with my husband, Steve. He's a diesel mechanic, an avid sportsman, and our family's probably a lot like some of yours. We're balancing kids, work, volunteering in the community, and trying to carve out some special time. But right now, with the state of politics, with everything that's going on in our country, that's really hard to do. And I am concerned for our future and for the future for my children. And I decided that I had to step in and run for office to make a difference and to make our voices heard. I feel like the voices of our working families and the voices of our rural communities really aren't being heard or represented right now on a state level. Sure. And you just mentioned, you know, families and raising kids or sitting here with Ray Charles Tracy, who's asleep in his car seat. So what are some of your plans and ideas to make, you know, family leave and things easier for working families? You know, Andrew Cuomo was actually able to pass a statute that gives people paid family leave for the first time. Um, What are some ways to expand on that or do you support, you know, what are some of your views on that? Sure. So uh, I will say I had to go back to work when all three of my babies were six weeks old because we couldn't afford not to. And there are a lot of countries that give paid leave for as long as a year and give support to young families. I think that the focus uh, in those countries is that being a parent and raising children is a very valuable uh, contribution to our society. And so while Governor Cuomo and New York State have taken some good steps towards where I think we need to be, I think we need to go a lot further. Um, First of all, when you're on the paid family leave, the percentage of your salary is very low to what you actually make. And so in a family like mine, where we rely on two incomes, um, even though we did get some pay, uh, because it was so significantly less than what I normally get, we weren't able to be sustainable on that. And so I think that we need to make sure that we're uh, compensating families at a rate that they can survive on. Uh, Also, childcare is so expensive. So with three children, I had to make the choice between staying working or staying home because my income is about 
what uh, childcare costs. And so I think it goes a lot deeper. It goes into you know living wages and ensuring that my salary is more than than the cost of childcare, and also subsidizing some of those things. Um, I'm also a, a supporter of universal pre-K. I feel like once your child is three or four years old, uh, they're ready for interaction with other kids. They're ready to start learning and doing some play-based learning in school. And a lot of our facilities uh, already have the ability to do that sort of thing. But in my school district, um, it used to be a full-time program, and then it, it got cut back because of funding. So I'd like to make sure that we're putting the funding uh, where I believe it needs to go, which is to support our children and to support our families. So we just uh, actually drove to Kinderhook and we saw some of your signs out there and I see that you're kind of avidly canvassing. What are some of the challenges you hear uh, with regard to education in your assembly district, which is largely rural, it encompasses some of the more rural parts of Columbia and Rensselaer County. So what are you hearing from people uh, as pertinent to ed education? Sure, so I'm talking to a lot of teachers um, who are paid very meager salaries and then they're taking money out of those salaries to buy school supplies. And so what I'm hearing is that although school taxes are really high in this area, uh, the schools are not getting the funding that they're needing to, to provide these things. And so I think that we need to look at um, you know, how are we utilizing that money? Are we utilizing it in a way that's really supportive? And also things like Common Core. Um, Common Core was implemented and had we talked to the educators before we implemented that legislation, they probably could have told us that it was not in the best interest of the teachers and that it was not in the best interest of the students. And so as a legislator, I want to make sure that we're having all of those conversations and bringing all of those voices to the table. So if we're looking at legislation that affects a group of people, we need to be bringing those people to the table before we pass the legislation. Because maybe the teachers and educators could have modified uh, the legislation in a way that it actually would have been affected. But now what we're seeing is years later, we're saying, wow, that's not working, let's repeal it, let's reverse it. But we've spent a lot of time, money, resources. We've lost a lot of good teachers. A lot of friends of mine that used to teach no longer teach because they didn't feel like Common Core was uh, the best for the children, the best for them. And we've harmed students along the way. And so I think that we need to make sure that we're having conversations uh, with everyone's voice at the table before we uh, pass legislation that, that affects different groups. Sure. So in that, along that same vein, you're canvassing. What's the number one concern you hear when you're out knocking on doors? I know you were it, stuck in a lengthy converse, conversation right before coming here today. So what are you yeah. hearing from people? Yeah. Can I give the top three instead of just sure. one? Because yeah, you know, there's so many different demographics in my area. So um, the roads and infrastructure is a big one. We're not getting funding here in our district. Uh, to repair and upkeep our roads. So there's a road in my town, uh, Route 22, that's pretty much impassable. And we're being told, you're not Westchester County, you're not getting the funding to fix that road. And that's a big one. People feel like they pay a lot of money in taxes and they should be able to drive on the road without popping tires. Um, and then uh, another really big one is the opioid crisis. And I think that's everywhere. Sure. Um, but we have a lot of, like you said, rural communities and it's, it's a really big deal. Um, I was the court clerk before I was the town clerk. And what we're doing right now is not working. We're criminalizing an issue that really needs treatment. And when people are going to jail, they're not receiving any treatment while they're there. And when they get out, they're using, and a lot of times dying, because they're using at the same rate that they were using at when they went in, and their bodies don't have the same uh, tolerance built up. And we're 
losing a lot of young people um, to this crisis, and I think that we need to make sure that we're providing treatment and actually getting to the root of the issue. Um, so those are, are two really big ones. Uh, third is we have a very aging population. We have a hard time retaining our youth in this area um, from various reasons, from job creation that we need to infrastructure like broadband that we don't have uh, in these rural areas. But a lot of our population is very aging and a lot of our seniors are struggling. They um, can't afford their medications. I was talking to a lady the other day on a fixed income. She makes $600 a month through Social Security and her insulin is $300 a month so she's not left with enough to even pay her rent. Um, and so one idea that I have is working with the federal government to come up with some pilot program for New York State where we actually allow seniors to age comfortably in their own homes. People have paid into this system their entire life. I feel like they should have a choice when it comes to using it. Right now your only choice is to go into a nursing home and in order to qualify to do that under Medicare you have to sell your house, you have to have depleted all of your resources. And I feel like we need a, a tiered system where if you have a certain amount of assets you get you know, maybe 20% coverage and then when you drop down the coverage goes up till eventually you hit what's now the qualifying level and that's when 100% of the coverage kicks in. And so a lot of our seniors um, aren't able to age in their own home. I know my mom in a couple years is probably going to come live with us, not because she needs the help, but because she financially won't be able to afford to live on her own once she's retired. I have spoken to, I think at this point, maybe 15 candidates, and that is the most articulate way to think about the aging population here uh, and a potential solution. So yeah. that's really interesting, and it seems like you've really thought it through yeah um uh, and I appreciate that because it's something that will hit everyone you know my parents are aging not you know mm -hmm. not quite in the same age group yet but you know they just both were hospitalized in the past month and you that's when it kind of strikes you that you really need to have a plan in place yeah. um and it it's a an issue that hits everyone, yeah, really everywhere. It's true. It's true. And if I can talk just a, a minute more about the tiered system, sure, absolutely. My, my experience with that is when I I was born and raised in New Lebanon. I was um, traveling the country as a, a tour manager for nationally touring bands. I was in California when my son was born, my eldest, and I moved home to New Lebanon to live with my mom because I ended up a single mom with a seven-week-old baby. And I was on every part of the system you could be on. We were, I was on food stamps and Medicaid and cash assistance. And then I got a job working for the town of New Lebanon as the deputy court clerk. And come budget time, they usually offer some sort of 2% you know, cost of living increase. And at that time, I looked at the possibility of earning another $100 a month in my paycheck and losing up to $1,000 a month in benefits. So, you know, I've heard that we want people to work their way off the system, but we make it utterly impossible. There's this entire chasm where you either have to be really, um, you know, struggling like I was and then you're taken care of because you have your food, your rent, and everything paid for, or you have to be pretty well off to be able to afford everything yourself. But that whole middle area where a lot of us fall we hear that a lot from people that they don't want to to a pay raise because then they won't qualify for those same benefits and then they'll actually be worse off than they were before but yeah. you want people to be increasing their income slowly exactly. and Exactly. Um, if we actually want people to work their way off the system, then we have to make it so that if they get a raise of, say, $100, they lose $50 in benefits. So at the end of the day, it's a positive incentive to, you know, take raises and, and work your way up in the workforce. 
So we're speaking to you uh, during a week when there's been all these criminal indictments uh, of the, you know, president's close allies. Do you hear yes. people really concerned with what's going on uh, in Washington or not so much? I'm just curious yes. on a personal level because yes. we kind of look around and we're like, people are just trying to get by. Do they really, does it really matter to them, you know, what's going on in Washington? And, you know, you and I are part of this democratic kind of upsurge and interest and mm-hmm. activism, but it, when you actually are canvassing, do you hear about those issues as much? I do. I hear a lot about those issues. Um, I try to keep my talking points more on a state level because I'm running for state government. But one thing I talk about is that here in New York State, we can protect our residents. So Roe v. Wade, we might be fighting that again on a federal level now that Kennedy has stepped down. Here in New York State, we need to pass the Women's Reproductive Health Act so that we can protect women within New York State. Uh, All of the environmental rollbacks that are happening on a federal level right now are really scary. A lot of people have um, spoken pretty um, upset about what's going on with our planet and the protections. So here in New York State, similar to what California recently did, we have the ability and the right to say we're not going to participate in those rollbacks. We're going to stay with our emission standards and our environmental standards where they are and continue to move forward into a stricter and stricter uh, protection of the environment. And we certainly need to do that because within your district is uh, kind of a sad example of what happens when regulation and environmental standards aren't followed or monitoring isn't done correctly, uh, and that example is in Hoosick Falls. Yeah. Um, so tell us a little bit about your plans for that community. We just listened to another interview with you, of you, mm-hmm. in which you mentioned doing monitoring of all all water wells across yeah. the state, whether public or private. So could you expand a little bit more on Hoosick Falls and sure. you know plans for clean drinking water? Yeah, so uh, Hoosick Falls specifically um, right now has you know systems individually on houses that allow their water to be treated, but we really need to make sure that we're bringing in a fresh water system for them. Uh, their water system is completely contaminated and they don't have access to clean water uh, other than putting a Band-Aid on the, on the problem, which is saying we're going to fil- filter your water, which is a great you know, part-time uh, solution for now. But we need to look at how can we get them in a, a fresh water source that's a long-term solution. But moving forward, I think that the state should be paying for water testing. In my district, we are mostly rural communities, and the majority of those communities don't have public water systems. And so people are on you know, drilled wells and other private sources. And right now, unless you pay to get your water tested on a regular basis, which a lot of people can't afford to do, you don't know until maybe it's too late. And so I feel like if we had something in place where we were regularly testing all of the water systems, something like the PFOA contamination, we would have caught a lot earlier and been able to, um, you know, proactively uh, intervene before it got to be such an epidemic and such a crisis. Sure. And the assemblyman that's currently in office has been in office for about four months, uh, Assemblyman Ashby. Yep. And when he ran, we followed the special election pretty closely back in April, and he kind of pitched himself as a moderate. And then this week, uh, he posted that he used his office of assembly to write a letter on behalf of the NRA. Mm -hmm. And that kind of showed, obviously, gun 
gun rights are an issue up here where yes. people, there are a lot of responsible gun owners and the messaging that Republicans tend to use is that this person is coming after your guns. Uh, yeah. Congressman, uh, sorry, Assemblyman Ashby said he received so many calls that against the the governors going after the NRA. Yeah. Um, so what are what are some ways that we can bridge that divide that the Republicans inevitably are going to say, you know, Tristia's after your guns. Right, right. How can we make sure that you say no, she's yeah. not after your guns, yeah. but she is for more responsible gun ownership? Sure. So the first thing I like to start with is that my family is a responsible gun-owning family. So my husband is an avid sportsman and hunter. Uh, we have you know, guns in the home, and I am not looking to take the rights away from any responsible gun owners. But I really don't think it's an either-or issue. I think that a lot of people think it's either take guns away or do nothing. And I don't think either of those is the answer. We need to find that middle ground. We need to say yes we protect the Second Amendment rights of our citizens and we want to ensure that responsible gun owners don't get those rights taken away. However, we also want to make sure that our children are safe. And this is a bipartisan issue. This isn't, you know, a school shooter comes in and just shoots the Democratic children. This is an issue that is going to affect all of the families in our district. And so the example I use is military assault rifles. My husband and other hunters that I know don't use military assault rifles to hunt and they don't use them for personal protection. Military assault rifles are used uh, to kill people. And so that's something that I feel very strongly that we can make sure that people can't purchase military assault rifles and that's not impeding on any responsible gun owner's right to own a hunting rifle or to own a pistol for personal protection, which are the two reasons that you would be a responsible gun owner is either you're a hunter or you have guns for personal protection. Sure. and. Um my last question for you is you are actually facing off in a primary on yep. September 13th. How do you distinguish yourself from uh, Don Bayajan, who is uh, your opponent in the primary? Sure. So I feel very strongly that we need a lot of different perspectives in our government. I feel that our constituents are very varied. We have uh, mostly rich white males right now leading our government. And uh, although there's nothing wrong with the perspective of a rich white male, it's one perspective. And so I think we need all different genders. I think we need all different socioeconomic statuses. I think we need all different races to ensure that we have a varied perspective at the table. So unless you, like me, have struggled going back to work when your baby is six weeks old and struggled between do I go back to work or do I not go back to work and having a parent who is going to come live with you because she financially can't afford to live on your own, these are things that allow me to have perspectives that my opponent doesn't have. Uh, being a woman in in our country, in our, in our state. Um, and so those experiences have created a perspective for me uh, that is going to be able to speak to a lot of the needs that are here in our district. And so I am running as the candidate that is just like a lot of you. I'm a working class mother of three. Uh, I grew up with a single mom on food stamps. I know what it's like to struggle financially in this district. I know what it's like to not have proper family leave in our state and our country. I know what it's like to pay $1,800 a month for a family insurance plan and yet pay high co-pays and high deductibles every time my children need to go to the doctor. Uh, these are very real needs that are facing our district and I'm the candidate that can speak to those needs on a personal level. 
we also need someone in this seat that can appeal not just to Democrats, but across party lines. And that's really important. Uh, this seat's been held by a Republican for over 20 years, and we're split about a third, a third, a third between Democrats, Republicans, and unaffiliated voters and other. Those unaffiliated and other voters are going to decide the November election. I have won an election in New Lebanon as a Democrat, which is a majority Republican community. And so I have the ability to reach across party lines. I won by a 13% margin, uh, reaching wow. Republican voters, unaffiliated voters. Because a lot of the issues that I'm talking about are not partisan issues. We're talking about roads. We're talking about proper family leave. We're talking about health care. We're talking about the opioid crisis. These are issues that are facing all of our residents, regardless of party affiliation. And so the, the issues that I'm speaking to, I think, uh, address the needs of all of us. Well, thank you so much for your time, Tistria. Uh, Ray's eyes lit up when he woke up from Hi. his nap when he heard about your plans and <laughs> why you're the best candidate. We wish you the best of luck. Uh, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, so you can go to my website, which is www.tistria4assembly. I'm going to spell my first name. It's T-I-S-T-R-Y-A. Uh, you can also check me out on Facebook, which is facebook.com slash Tistria for Assembly. Wonderful. Thanks again. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Spotlight 19. We'll be back shortly. And on the show, we have Joyce St. George, who's running for State Assembly in District 51. Until then, keep the faith.